Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. You may have heard our guest on this episode, Dr Gabor Maté, before. His first appearance on the podcast is one of our all-time most popular episodes. He joined us again in person in London last year to tell us about The Myth of Normal, a book that serves as his magnum opus, drawing together a lifetime of insight into the connection between mind, body, health and society. He was in conversation with the filmmaker David Malone. So the, the, the title is The Myth of the Normal, yeah. Trauma, Illness and the Healing in a Toxic Culture. Should we start with what you mean by a toxic culture, since we all live in it? Sure, sure. So the analogy that we use in the introduction is in a laboratory, if you're a scientist uh, growing uh, microorganisms in a broth, you'd call that a culture. You say you're culturing microorganisms. And if those creatures were thriving and proliferating, you'd say that's a healthy culture. But if a lot of them are um, developing pathologies, dying, struggling, you'd say it's a toxic culture. There's something in the brew that doesn't serve the health uh, of these um, microorganisms. Well, I'm saying that there's something about this culture that we live in that doesn't serve the health, that undermines the health of many of the people living in it. And you can look upon illness either as some random misfortune that hits people, very rarely dictated by genetics, but mostly just we don't know what causes it, and it's just bad luck, too bad. Or we can actually say, well, maybe there's something about the way we live that contributes to people's illness. And I'm saying that in this culture, illness is not an abnormality. It's actually a normal response to abnormal circumstances. Hmm. You also talk about the, the main title, the myth of the normal. Yeah. And it, it sort of features in the book in two ways, doesn't it? That, that we think that the culture that we walk around is normal. Yeah. It, it's normal out there. It's yeah. a normal day. It's a normal yeah. week. But we think we're th- we are all normal ourselves. Yeah. What was it that made you start to question this idea of normal? Because you must have, at some point in your life have thought, this is normal too. Yeah. What, what made you wake up and think, well, hang on, this isn't normal? Yeah, so that's where the meaning of normal comes into it. See, in, from the medical point of view, th- there's a range of normal that corresponds to what is healthy and what is natural. So within, without, outside a certain spectrum of body temperature, you can't live. If your body temperature falls too low, or goes too high, you can't live. Outside a certain level of blood acidity, you can't sustain life. Beyond a certain range of blood pressure, if it's too low or too high, you don't live. So in that sense, normal, the normal range corresponds to what is healthy and what is natural. But we make the assumption in this society that what we're used to, in other words, what is norm to us, is also healthy and natural. And I'm saying it's a dangerous assumption, in fact, quite false. So that what is considered to be normal in this culture is neither healthy nor is it natural, Not, unlike in that strict medical sense. When we talk about the, the toxic culture, yeah. um, are we talking about the range of illnesses that are prevalent? Because it is a point you make very early on in the book, that we're a very health-obsessed culture. Yeah. And so it's, it's ironic, to say the least, that there's such a, a, a tidal wave of, of illness that's, yeah. that... And is it well accounted for in the normal medical hypothesis? 
Well, so there's two ways you can hurt people. Um, one is you do bad things to them, such as mistreat them. Now that happens on the individual level in the case of child abuse and so on, of which there's plenty. And on the social level, uh, in, uh, in the form of the inequalities that British research has so clearly shown to be a major source of ill health. The world-famous researchers here in England have been pioneers, and Michael Marmot and, uh, and others, showing the impact of inequality. In fact, just yesterday in The Guardian, the Bishop of London was talking about health inequalities in this culture. So you saw that during COVID. Who was most likely to get to fall ill and to die of COVID? By significant percentages, it would be people of uh, minorities, color, low socioeconomic status, and so on. So that inequality, and then and then the embedded uh, racism and all kinds of other prejudices that beset people, that on a, on, a, on a, what corresponds to an individual level to be individual abuse, you might say, is on a social level, a social abuse. So that's one way to hurt people, is just to do bad things to them. I mean, there was a study just three weeks ago, just, just as the book was being published, another study in the States showing that in the aftermath of racism, a racist episode, a person's immune system's activity diminishes and their hormone level changes, just one episode like that. So there's plenty of that kind of hurting people. But the other way you can hurt people is by depriving them of their needs. So we all have a need for oxygen. You know, I don't have to hit you, but I could badly hurt you by sucking the oxygen out of this room. I'm saying that people have certain needs. Uh, children have certain essential needs without which they don't develop health in a healthy way. And adults have certain needs. And this society deprives them of those needs. So both in the active sense of, of imposing hurt on people and in the more passive sense of depriving of their needs, it's a toxic culture. Hmm. A lot of the book, you are very concerned through the whole book with children. I mean, yeah. if there's one group, and yeah. we've all been a member of that group at some point, yeah. um, that, it, that when you talk about hurting people or depriving people, yeah. that it's not really grown-ups you're talking about most of the time, that a lot of the hurt that people carry yeah. around with them, yeah. you say it's in the very, very earliest part of their childhood, yeah. before one years old. Yeah. Tell us what you mean by that and why you think it happened so early. Well, with any organism, um, I mean, if you're um, a gardener, um, a horticulturist, and you're planting flowers or trees, you, you know that the conditions that you're establishing I mean, at the earliest stages are the most important ones. So that, you know, an, an acorn may have the potential to develop into a mighty oak tree, but only if the conditions are right. Otherwise, it might not develop at all. So, in, in terms of human beings, the most important period are the formative years beginning in utero. So already, uh, stresses on pregnant women, we know, have impact on the developing child in such a way that, that, that interferes, for example, with the stress apparatus. Like, for example, in, after 9-11, um, there was a study of women who had developed post-traumatic stress disorder while pregnant as a result of 9-11, and one year later, their children still had abnormal stress hormone levels. Mm. Well, you don't need 9-11 to stress women. That was just a particular example. 
um, I could get named a whole lot of other studies um, in utero. Um, then there is, I spent some time in the book talking about birth practices and, and, and human birth is not just a question of the baby being expelled from the womb. Birth was actually designed by nature for much more. It was to create a, a, a context for bonding between mother and infant. Biochemically, actually, during birth process, certain a love cocktail, it's been called, oxytocin and endorphins and other, are, are is released. Now, modern medicine has certainly performed miracles in saving women's and children's lives when birth wasn't going well. So that's not to be either denied or decried, but they're also interfering with birth mercilessly. The way I was trained to deliver babies was really interventionist and totally unnecessary in a way that would undermine the bonding between mother and infant. So in, in, in British Columbia where I live, uh, there's a cesarean section rate that's almost 40% now. That's incredible. It should be, but according to the Lancet, the British publication, it is worldwide now especially amongst middle and upper class people in, 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 in the so-called third world, China and Brazil and so on. The cesarean section rate is approaching 50%, which is unbelievable. It should be about 10 or 15%. So in utero, and by the way, if, if you ever given birth here, if you're ever pregnant, just raise your hand that if you went to the doctor for your prenatal visit, they asked you about your emotional states. Anybody? I don't see any hands up. Yet that's so important. You know, now they ask you about your diet maybe and your blood pressure and, you know, but, but nothing about your emotional states, which is amazing given how important that is. And then there's the whole childhood, how do we raise children? And what I'm saying is, is that we become denatured. Human beings have parenting instincts. All animals have parenting instincts. But instincts have to be evoked by the environment so that an instinct doesn't necessarily come online. It has to be supported by the environment. In this society, people are actually trained to ignore their instincts. I mean, I give the example of my mother who um, writes in her diary, when I was two weeks of age, poor little Gabor, my heart is breaking for you because you've been crying to be fed for the last hour and a half, but I promised the doctor I only feed you every four hours, so I'll have to let you, let you cry for another half an hour. Her instinct was to pick me up and to hold me. That's the maternal instinct. But she was stifling her instinct in order to comply with medical advice. By the way, medical advice that I myself used to give uh, until I found out better, like let the baby cry it out, let them go back to sleep, all this kind of nonsense that totally inimical to human development, but which advice that we give to parents all the time. And I could go down the line in all the ways that parenting is undermined in this culture. So we get the early years wrong, and then we wonder why so many kids are being diagnosed with everything under the sun. Yes, but the, and those, those things that happen to you, I think you say at some point that all trauma is pre-verbal. And, yeah. and uh, tra trauma is something that you, you're quite careful in the book to say, look, it doesn't mean that you were, you were run over or you were kidnapped. Yeah. That it's things like not being fed Yes. As, a, as a small child. Not, not, and you, being, and, not being responded to, yeah. Yes. Um, and, and you then take that idea of trauma being something that can happen to a very young child, yeah. and you say, before our minds can make the world, that, you know, we make the world that we then live in, he says, but before that happens, the world makes our minds. Yes, yeah. yeah. And it's, 
those early experiences, for you, are those the things then that you could classify as traumas, that they, they become embedded in the child yeah. and manifest them later in life as something? That's right. How does that happen? How does, it get, how does it get embedded? Yeah, well, first of all, what sort of things are they? And then um, why do they get embedded? So trauma basically means a wound. So trauma is when you're wounded and that wound persists and, and, and has impact in your life later on. So trauma, this is important to distinguish. Trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. So I, I just came back from Budapest. I was there presenting this book on Hungarian. And uh, this is... I don't know who designs this, but I went, you know, one of the things that I have to do every day is swim. You don't want to talk to me if I haven't swum, you know. And uh, I swam this morning already, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so in Budapest, I was staying in a hotel, and around the corner there's a swim club where I go swimming every morning. Across the street, directly across the street, as far from us as, say, the second row here, is the building where my mother and I lived when I was 11 months old and I nearly died there. And she gave me to a stranger in the street on the same paving stones that are still there. And so I didn't see her for five or six weeks. A lot of people know this story. The trauma wasn't that she gave me to a stranger. The trauma is what I made it mean. Now any child, what, what, what can a child make it mean except that I'm being abandoned? And who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not lovable. Somebody who's not wanted. So the trauma then is my sense of not being wanted, not being lovable, not being considered important enough. And now that trauma plays itself out in, in, for decades afterwards. So it's not what happened to me as such. Because when you look at it objectively, what happened to me as such was that my mother gave me to a stranger and the stranger took me. Those are both huge acts of love actually. That's the universe loving this child to take care of it. But that doesn't matter. It's how, what I make it mean. So the wound is then what happens within us. That gets embedded in the nervous system as, as emotional memory, not as recollection. I don't recall being given to a stranger by my mother because the parts of the brain that recall aren't even online at that age yet. It doesn't come online until years later. But the emotional memory of being hurt and being abandoned and, and not being wanted, that's embedded in the nervous system. And then it, then it gets triggered whenever anything even vaguely resembling it later on, decades later, shows up. In fact, if you look at the expression being triggered, it's a really interesting expression. These days we're, you know, trigger warning, you know. Uh, Don't you trigger me. Well, here's the thing. What can be triggered? For a trigger to do anything, a trigger is a very small little thing. For a trigger to have any impact whatsoever, there has to be an ammunition there, there has to be explosive charge. So when I get triggered, it's not because somebody did something. It's because what they did happened to set off the explosive charge, the emotional baggage that I'm carrying. So if I carry the emotional baggage of somebody who doesn't have a sense of being wanted and being important, Anything later on that reminds me of that will trigger me and drive my behavior. So that's how that trauma works. It's embedded in the nervous system, in the brain, in a form of emotional, subverbal memory. Hmm. Nothing you... By, by the way, I'm sorry to say, one more thing. It's also embedded in the body. So many of you will have had the experience 
Or if you're a body worker, like a massage therapist and so on, you, you go to a massage therapist, they touch you in a certain part of the body, and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed by emotion. You've had that experience? So that's the body, as Bessel says, Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. So the trauma is embedded also in the, in the muscles and in the connective tissues and the nerves. Hmm. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. You also in the book you make the point that this word trauma, it's difficult to hear it in any way as other than negative, but the point that you make in the book is that these, the thing, the story you tell yourself or that your body yeah. takes in is meant to help you at the time. At the time, that it's yeah. a, it, And is that why it gets, it, that it gets retained, that in its original form yeah, it's doing I mean, something positive, but yeah. later becomes... Yeah, that's a good point. Tell us yeah, more about that, please. Absolutely. So, um, let's take somebody with a diagnosis of personality disorder, you know, borderline personality disorder, one of these diagnoses that don't explain anything. They might describe something, but they don't, they don't explain anything, you know? So one of the characteristics is that they don't trust people. It's just hard for them to form relationships. And they very easily feel hurt in a relationship. Well, that's a perfectly normal defensive response to a childhood when you were hurt a lot. You shouldn't trust. I mean, why would you want to trust? How could you trust if you were always having a sense of being disappointed and even being betrayed? So that what's called to be a pathological manifestation actually begins as a coping mechanism and it's associated with your survival or um, depression, you know, um, this disease of depression. Well, really? What does it mean to depress something? It means to push it down. Now, what gets pushed on in depression is emotions. But why would somebody push down their emotions? Only because it was dangerous for them to express it or unacceptable for them to express it. In other words, they listen to a lot of parenting experts who tell people to suppress children's emo emotions if, if the emotions aren't acceptable to the parents. Then a child, in order to survive, will suppress their emotions, will depress them. That's a survival technique associated with being accepted and, and then being part of the family, which is something the child cannot do without. Yeah. So once you associate something with survival, you're going to keep doing it, especially since it's unconscious. It's not like you chose to do it. It's just that, you know, this is how your organism survived, by depressing your emotions. Now you're going to keep doing that. In fact, you'll be afraid not to. And later on, you're diagnosed with this disease, but it begins as a coping mechanism. And there's so many others. 
of these coping mechanisms that are associated with uh, survival, and therefore um, we don't give them up because if we, if something, if our survival depends on being a certain way, if that's what we learned, we're not going to give it up that easily. Especially as you point out, children have very few options. Yeah. You know, the, the, the ones that are built into us as mammals, it's yeah. fight, flight, or, or freeze. Yeah. Well, if you're, a, if you're a baby, you can't fight. Yeah, and you you, it's very difficult to run away, so yeah. it doesn't leave you with much, does it? Except, as you say, just to freeze and... Yeah. And it's that need for attachment. This is a uh, word so, that you deal yeah. with a lot. Tell us about attachment. So this is a conflict that is probably central to my work. In, in, in all manner of conditions uh, and in all, in all kinds of situations. It's a very powerful dynamic in adult relationships, for example, is that the, the child has an absolute need to belong to the parents and to be cared for by the parents. That drive to be close to somebody in order to be taken care of or to take care of the other, for that matter, is called attachment. And mammals um, are creatures of attachment. They can't survive without attachment, without the caring relationship. Obviously, the young cannot survive. So attachment, that's fine. But then we have this other need that's also determined by evolution, which is I call authenticity. And just auto the self's authenticity, being in touch with ourselves, being in touch with our feelings and our bodies and our emotions. Um, I know last time I spoke here, I think I asked the same question, but let me do it again. Um, I think I did. If you've had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something and ignoring it and then being sorry afterwards, just raise your hand, okay? Well, see the vast majority. What, what, you, what you're telling me here is about your childhood. Because gut feelings are essential for survival. We evolved out there in nature for millions of years. The humanoid, the humanoid ancestors of our species lived out there in nature, as did our own species live out in nature for most of our existence as a species. Like out of the 150, 200,000 years that Homo sapiens has walked the earth, if that can be represented in one hour, then until about five minutes ago we lived out there in nature. How long does any creature in nature survive if they're not in touch with their gut feelings? So that being in touch with our bodies and, and, our, and our emotions is essential also. Terrific. But what happens is if for the sake of fitting with the family or with a culture that doesn't particularly support our authenticity, we have to give up our connection to ourselves, our authenticity, for, for the sake of attachment. Then being inauthentic, being out of touch with ourselves, is how we survive. We're afraid to be ourselves because we associate being ourselves with the threat of being rejected. And so this means that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be in relationships where we're afraid to be ourselves, to really say what it feels like for us. Now that has terrific implications. When I say terrific, I mean significant implications. A study I quote in the book, they followed 2,000 women over 10 years. Over a 10-year period, those women who were unhappily married and didn't express their feelings were four times as likely to die as those women who were unhappily married, but they did talk about their feelings. So that inauthenticity, which is not a moral, not a moral judgment on my part, it's a, something people do in order to survive their childhoods, but that exacts a major cost in terms of physical and mental health, not to mention your relationships, 
where you're afraid to be yourself, where you're in a relationship and you don't even, you're, they don't even, your partner doesn't even know you because you're afraid to be yourself. So you feel alone even when you're partnered. Because if you're not known, you're going to feel alone. doesn't matter how many people surround you. So, it, you know, the, the price that we pay for an authenticity is huge. And yet, so many of us survived our childhood. And when you put your hand up, I mean, have you ever met a one-day-old baby that wasn't in touch with their gut feeling? Oh, uh, I'm tired and I'm hungry and I'm uncomfortable and I'm wet, but mom and dad are working so hard, I better not... <laughs> Cry, I better not cry, you know, come on, you know? In other words, when you put your hand up, something happened between the day you were born and a few years later, when you no longer listened to your gut feelings, because you couldn't afford to. Something happened. In a way, one of the things which come across very strongly, especially in the early part of the book, is that we tend to think that children learn things when we teach them, when they get to school, or when yeah. we can have a conversation yeah. with them. And very strongly in the book, what comes across is that children become who they are and learn their first, their first moral language, as it were, before any of that. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you think to yourself, I shall wait until the child can speak and then mm -hmm. I'll teach them, it's too late. They've already learned everything from what you did or didn't do. Yeah, that's right. So that the, the um, and, and as, as a parent, because I was quite out of touch with myself and based on my own history, I was never comfortable playing, playing with kids. I kept thinking, well, once they learn language, because I'm good at words, you see. So I thought once they learn language, then I'll be able to. But I missed the whole point, is that the um, real development happens before words even come along. The, 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 the emotional part of the brain, the, the holistic, you might say more feminine, although it's not gender determined at all. Um, holistic, um, emotional part of the brain, the right side of the brain, both in terms of the evolution of the species, but also in terms of the development of the individual. The right side of the brain, the emotional brain develops first. And it's the template for everything. Mm. If we get the right side of the brain right, the left brain will follow very nicely. If we don't get the right side of the brain, if we don't establish the emotional relationships, which children require for healthy development, then they might become very uh, intellectually developed on the left brain side, but they'll be very underdeveloped. There won't be a proper template for it. And then they're going to be professors and all that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> or philosophers, I don't know. <laughs> or medical doctors for that matter. So that in, in this culture, the, um, the left brain really rules. But the left brain, um, the, um, divorce from a healthy emotional underpinning, where does it get us? Hmm. It gets us to where we are, which is, we're the only species, we're the only species that creates environments that are destructive to its own species. Hmm. That's, where look, that's where the left brain has got us, because the right brain is underdeveloped. And it, and it can't speak. I mean, you, you can't... Yeah. In some way, you don't have verbal access to the lessons, that yeah. first language you learned yeah. before, by the time you were six months old. So how does that part of us speak to us when we won't listen? It speaks to us through our... Um, see, here's the thing. That's, here's the other thing. We think that we have this one brain up here. And what's a brain? A brain interprets stimuli from the environment 
processes them and responds. That's, that's what a brain does. So yeah, we have the cerebrum up here. But there's also, a, a, it turns out, there's a brain connected to the heart. There's a nervous system um, that surrounds the heart, which is in communication with this brain here. And of course the gut has been called the second brain. The gut has more, some, some more neurochemicals than the brain does in some ways. And gut feelings are not luxuries, as we've demonstrated. They're actually a form of knowledge. So the gut is processing stimuli from the environment. When these three brains are in sync with each other, then you have true wisdom. Then you have true awareness. When this one is unmoored from the other two, you can have all kinds of logic and all kinds of science and all kinds of technology, but you're not going to have wisdom. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hmm. It's worth saying, though, isn't it, um, that when someone... that it's possible to be a very good and loving person um, when you're not even being authentic to yourself. I'm thinking of... There was um, someone who's... You you quote in the book, I I think a patient or someone that you knew, who their family referred to them as they were lovely, they were wonderful, they they just fitted in with everyone all the time, they blended into the background and they were so loving and supporting. So they were a a genuinely lovely person, but at enormous cost to themselves. How does that happen? What kind of person is that? Well, I'm reminded of um, the TV series The Crown and um, Queen Elizabeth's father, the the late Queen Elizabeth's father, whose nickname was Bertie, was one of these people that was, the queen, the queen mom says about him after he died, that he was just a perfect son. He never thought of himself at all, you know? And um, very loving, very nurturing to everybody else but himself. And those are the people that get cancer, by the way, very often. And um, so, the love that you described, David, flows towards others, but love is supposed to be a two-way valve. It's supposed to flow in both directions. When it only flows towards others, and you ignore your own needs, then, you, then you're taking on way too much stress in this life, and it's going to tell on your health. So nothing wrong with loving others. We're meant to do that. But when we're loving others by chronically suppressing our own needs, where we are always afraid of disappointing others, where our own needs are compulsively ignored, that's a quick route to disease. Mm. And it is that connection with disease which shines through the book a lot. I mean, yeah. Particularly, as you said, that there's a personality type, the type yeah. that's always helping someone else, yeah. particularly in women, yeah. has a high rate of cancer. Yeah. But then you also talk about that self, I think you call it self-abnegating, is associated with an enormous number of autoimmune diseases, which, yeah. as you point out in the book, the rise in autoimmune diseases, yeah. um, arthritis and diabetes, yeah. can 
cannot be explained genetically or by any other means, really. Um, How is it, in your view, that a a physical disease, which modern medicine would say, oh, well, we'll just cure that with a pill, can flow from these early lessons in childhood? Sure. So, when you mention autoimmune disease and women, 70-80% of autoimmune disease happens to, to women which is an incredible proportion. And if you look at something like multiple sclerosis, um, the gender ratio back in the 30s was about one to one, but now it's, now it's more than three women for every man. And you can't explain it, as you say, genetically, because genes don't change in a population over 80 years. And so something's going on here. Now, it so happens that here's where you have to understand the mind-body unity. Like, again, this is one of those well-kept scientific secrets. I mean, scientifically, there's no doubt. In fact, it's beyond doubt that mind and body are inseparable, that, that, that the emotional apparatus in the brain and the immune system and the hormonal system and the nervous system are not even separate systems that are connected. They're one unit, different manifestations of the same unit. So let's take something like um, anger. Um, uh, you mentioned a child who's, who can't escape or fight back, but as an adult, um, if I were to intrude on your space in a hostile or threatening way, at some point, you'd want to get angry with me. My space, get out. That's healthy anger. So healthy anger is a boundary defense. It just keeps you from being invaded and being intruded upon. We have a circuit in our brain for anger. Anger is not a bad thing. All animals have a circuitry, all mammals have anger circuitry in their brain. Why? Because it helps them defend their territories. You're in my space, get out. It's healthy. In fact, it prevents conflict. Because if I mount a big anger display, we might not come to blows. So anger is the boundary defense, right? So what is the role of the immune system? It's a boundary defense. The immune system keeps out that which is unhealthy and and, and toxic and uh, bacteria and so on, and allows in nutrients and vitamins and whatever you, healthy bacteria, whatever isn't good for health. So both the immune system and the emotional system have the same role, you see, to let in what is nurturing and to keep out what is toxic. That's the role of the emotional system. That's the role of the immune system. Given that they're the same unit, they're not separate. When something happens emotionally, it's going to impact on the, emotion, on the immune system as well. So the people that suppress themselves uh, emotionally because they're programmed to do so, not because it's their fault, but because that's how they survived their childhoods. Those people that suppress their emotions, uh, uh, then naturally it's going to have an impact on the, immune, on the immune system, and it does. So the immune system will either fail to protect you, or it'll actually, just like anger that you repress, turns against you, in the form of uh, self-loathing and self-criticism and shame. In the same way, the immune system can turn against you, and now you've got autoimmune disease. And if you look at it from the cultural point of view, which group in this society is culture-related to take on other people's stresses, to swallow their own needs, not to express them, not to be angry, to take on responsibility for looking after their, their partners and their families. It's women. They're, that's one of the patriarchal de- determinations of the female role in a society. And you wonder then, 
that women are much more prone to autoimmune disease. And I can tell you, it was here in uh, London in 19, 2018 that I gave a talk at a conference saying some of these same ideas. And there's a young woman there with a disease called lupus. Lupus is an autoimmune disease, which attacks multiple organs in the body. In her case, amongst other manifestations, it showed up in this butterfly rash on her face, and her fingers were white as chalk because the circulation was impaired. And, 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 and she came to this talk, and she got it. She's all her life has been pursuing attachment over authenticity, always denying her own needs. Of course she was told, because in, see, physicians don't understand any of this. They don't know what I'm talking about. As a profession, I mean, only because they're not taught the science. Isn't, so my knock on my profession isn't that there's too much science, there's not enough science. There's a huge source of science that we just don't ignore, that we ignore. So, her name is Valentina, this woman, I'm, 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 I have liberty to talk, talk about her. She was told that you've got this autoimmune disease, we don't know what causes it, there's nothing we can do about it, we can give you strong medications to control it for the rest of your life. Mm. Four years later, she's off medications, her color is as normal as it gets, and she's functioning beautifully. And I know many such examples, because she changed her emotional relationship to herself. She stopped ignoring her own needs and serving the needs of others automatically. Her physiology responded, now, I'm not offering a magic cure here, but I know so many such cases. And of course, that's what I would expect. If I, if I understand that the mind and body are one, then if I change, not if I develop better thoughts, but if I actually work through my trauma and change my emotional relationship to myself, so I show up in the world differently, of course I can expect that to have an impact on my physiology. And in so many cases, it does. So, these aren't purely theoretical considerations. I'm talking about people's actual health here. Mm. And it does give you a very different view of what disease is, as you yes. say in the book. Disease isn't necessarily an invasion of your life from something mm. outside, but it, at least a significant part of it is a manifestation of something that's right. in you. And yes. because it's in you, you can do something about it. That's the whole point, David. So, and, and language is very important. How we talk about things. So. When we say, I have cancer, or I have ADHD, or I have depression, or I have rheumatoid arthritis, there's an assumption in that way of talking. It's not it's very normal to talk about it in those terms, but there's an assumption there. The assumption is that there's this thing, there's an entity called the disease, then there's another entity, me, and this entity, me, has this other entity. So, I have this glass. The glass has got nothing to do with me. It's not part of me. It's not a manifestation of who I am. It's simply an object that I have, I can use it, put it down, give it away, shatter it. That's not going to change me in any way at all. But what if disease is not an entity that is a life of its own? What if disease, you know, like when you go to a doctor and say, you've got this disease, here's the prognosis. That assumes that the life of disease is of its own, which is totally independent of your life. It's a thing that you have. It's an entity that somehow entered you, and now you have it. But what if it's not an entity? What if it's a process? What if it's a process that manifests your life? What if it's a process that manifests how you were carried in your mother's womb, what happened to you as a child, what beliefs you developed about yourself, 
what if it reflects your relationships with the world, with your community, with your family, with your culture? And above all, what if it manifests your relationship to yourself? That it's a process that manifests all these dynamics. It then follows that if you change that relationship to yourself, you can have an impact on that process that the disease represents. And that's what I believe is actually going on. It's a process, it's not a thing, it doesn't have a life of its own necessarily. I'm not saying everything is curable, it's just not that simple, but it is a process, and insofar as you change what goes into that process, you can have significant influence on that process in many, many, many cases. And you can certainly prevent it from coming on by understanding this. You, you mentioned the word cure, and that's another thing you bring up in the book, is the huge difference between the word cure and the word heal. Yeah. And modern medicine is good at curing you of symptoms, yeah. but doesn't necessarily heal you. So if, you, if, you, if you're depression, they'll say, well, we can cure you of your symptoms, here, take this pill. But you won't be healed, and that's why you have to take the pill for the rest of your life. Yeah, Ta that's right. How does one move from being simply cured every morning that you take your pill yeah. to being healed and not having to take the pill. Yeah, so again, language is very important here. So trauma, the essence of trauma is actually a disconnection from yourself. That is, you probably understand from what you disconnect from your body and for your feelings because you had to in order to survive. Now, healing comes from a word for wholeness. It comes from an Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness. That's the origin of it. In Hungarian, actually, literally, health means to be whole. It's, it's that simple. Same in English, although the, the origin is not as clear, but, but the origin of the word does come from the word for wholeness. So, in other words, healing then is the restoration of those connections to yourself that you lost as a result of trauma. So healing becomes becoming whole again. Some people, and that makes life worth living, to the point where, strange as it sounds, and certainly nothing I recommend, but when I was working in palliative care, looking after people who were terminally ill, it would not be unusual for somebody to say to me, Doc, I don't know how to explain this to you, but this disease is the best thing, this disease that's going to take my life is the best thing that ever happened to me. No, again, I'm not recommending it. All I'm saying is, that some people valued the sense of becoming whole again so much that it mattered more to them than their physical survival. Which is not to say that they wouldn't have accepted a cure had there one been available. I'm just saying that they were valuing the wholeness that they found by confronting their death, for example. A lot of people can find wholeness and significant remission of their illness by reconnecting with themselves, which is what healing means. So how to do that? Well, there's all kinds of pathways, and the longest part of the book is about healing, but it, it is about reversing that disconnection that trauma imposed on us. Mm. And towards the end of the book, you, you, you raise this, the, the word meaning, that, that the, the, sort of the typical view of, of a disease, like something that comes from outside, it is essentially meaningless. Yeah. But once you begin to think, to look at your life and reconnect with it. There is a sense in which, and I think you quote several of, your, of the people you've treated, they said, once I realize my illness 
it, it made sense. Yeah. And how does tell us a bit more about what that that sense of a meaning, how that relates to wholeness and the finding sense of, of meaning or sense of me. Meaning. Meaning. Yeah. Because it's connected, isn't it? That, that that reconnection with you brings meaning. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that it's a really great question, um, but it's more easily answered experientially than than intellectually. So. If, if, if you just ask yourself here, when there was purpose and meaning, genuine meaning that expressed who I actually was in my life, how did I feel? As compared to when I was doing things that were basically meaningless and didn't come from my authentic self. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, about one third of the audience. That's pretty good. The rest of you can find out. <laughs> but. But I certainly know that when I'm doing work, when I engage in activities that express who I genuinely am, and, and I find a sense of meaning in it, which is to say that what, I make, what I'm doing makes a difference in the world, or just how I'm showing up makes a difference in the world. Fundamentally, we're connected creatures. Our brains are connected to each other. Our physiology is connected to each other. So when we engage in activities that serve that connection in one way or the other, we find meaning. That could be through individual activity, like creativity, like art and so on. But when you create art, you're not just thinking about yourself. It's something larger process that's coming through you. You're kind of channeling the universe in some way. You're allowing yourself to open. I'm not an artist, but if I was, but, I, but I'm married to one. And, 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 when the artist is creating, there's something flowing through them. I, I experience that sometimes when I'm writing. Meaning is the presence of that something else other than just the egoic little self. That's why I put it. Hmm. And we provide that, or we can provide that in our relationships with other people. Going back to parenting, there's yeah. a difference between being the, the parent who comes home and says, well, I brought the bacon home, honey, here's the, here's the money for pay the rent. Yeah. But that, or, or to buy your child a Game Boy or something. But it's a different thing to engage in a meaningful way, to yeah. provide meaning for them by actually physically engaging with them. Yeah, so to, exactly. So to go back to what I said about meaning is beyond my little particular concerns. I can relate to my child two ways. I can relate to my child as kind of a projection or extension of myself and I want them to be a certain way. Uh, maybe I think that's best for them, but nevertheless, I define what is best for them in terms of my own um, expectations. Or I can relate to my child as a separate human being who needs to find their own meaning, and I need to get very curious about what's happening for them. It's a totally different relationship. And I, it's not a question of whether I love the child or not. Both, both of these parents, these, both, both of these hypothetical parents can love their child equally well in terms of their goodwill or warm feelings towards them. But one of them is going to develop a meaningful relationship. The other will not. Because it's not about me, it's about the connection. 
And going back to the person who might feel themselves, yeah. they might want to change something about their lives. Maybe they've got an, an immune disease, maybe they're diabetic or something. Yeah. That, the work that goes into it, is it easy? Is it, do you just start on it and day one you go, whew, I feel so much better already? Or is well, it hard? It's, it, it's not easy for two reasons. One is because you're stumbling around in the dark. You're, you're stumbling around in the dark of your own conscious that was shaped by early experiences. And also because it may not fit in with the life that you've created. Like if you've been in a relationship where you don't say no and you're always taken on the needs of the partner, that relationship may be in trouble if you all of a sudden start asserting yourself. So you have to face this choice again, that as a child, you can only decide one way, but as an adult, you have more latitude. If I had to choose between authenticity and attachment, I mean, my own marriage, we were very clear, we married 53 years now, but it's very clear between us that had my wife had been less concerned about attachment, and more connected to herself, at some point, she would have left me for her own sake and for the sake of the kids, actually. Now, we've done a lot of work and so on. I'm just saying that had she been authentic then, she would have had to decide to let the relationship go at a certain point. So it's not easy to do that because that brings up all kinds of insecurities and so on. But it's not as difficult as it sounds either because, you know, just a little exercise that I teach people, it's the chapter on it in the book, but just ask yourself, where this week did I have trouble saying no? What I mean by that is, there's a no that wanted to be said, but you didn't say it. Very simple, somebody asks you to go for coffee, and you don't feel like it because you're tired. I, had, I went to this last night, I was going to have dinner with a really good friend last night. And, but I was tired, I was really tired. I just came in from Budapest, I was, you know. Um, but it took a bit of an effort for me to say, look, you know, no, no dinner tonight. I need to go home and rest, you know. This is me teaching all this stuff, you know. I, I mean, I did it, I did it. I went home instead to the hotel, I had a hot bath, I went to bed instead. But this tension comes up of disappointing somebody else, you know. And, uh, no, the other person totally understood and supported my decision, so the, the problem wasn't theirs, it was simply my own mm, fear of d d disappointing somebody, even after all these years. But you can ask yourself, it's very simple, somebody asks you out for coffee, you don't feel like it, for whatever reason, you're tired, you're, you know, you're, you're upset, or you're, you, just don't, you don't feel like it, but you don't say no more seriously on the job, somebody asks you to take on yet another project and you don't want to seem like you're not a team member so you don't say no. Or in a relationship, certain demands are put on you and you don't feel like meeting those demands but you don't say no. Well, that will have significant impact on you. But just ask yourself once a day or once a week, where this week did I not say no? Because that no that you don't say is a marker of your authenticity. Because your authentic self wants to say no. If you don't say it, don't criticize yourself for it, but get curious about it. Where did I not say no? And secondly, um, what was the impact of my not saying no? If you don't feel like going out for coffee, and you do, what's going to be the impact on you? Or if you take on more work, what's going to be the impact on you? 
Thirdly, what belief did I have that kept me from saying no? So there are more, uh, you know, if I say no, I'm a bad person. If I say no, I'm selfish. If I say no, they won't like me. Those are the stories that we tell ourselves. The exercise has more parts to it, but it's very simple. You just work with the word no and see how that shows up or doesn't show up in your life. That exercise alone, I've had people tell me that that exercise alone changed their lives. So, yes, it's difficult, but at the same time, it's also simpler than we, than we imagine. The last question before we open it to the audience. If people did what you're suggesting and, yeah. and tried to reconnect with their more authentic self, yeah. is that a way for us to collectively heal our toxic culture? Is that enough? Is that going to work? No. Oh dear. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish it was. But the people... Uh, this is, I'm expressing my political perspective here now, but I think it's reasonable. The people that make the policies are the least likely to do this kind of work. And politicians are notoriously lacking in self-reflection. Like, and I've studied them. Like, um, and Margaret Thatcher was completely opaque to herself. She did not know herself at all. A lot of these people don't. That's what drives them. A lot of stuff drives them to want power, to want control. And those dynamics are often unconscious, they're often rooted in trauma, but they lack self-reflection. Very few politicians are self-reflective. And um, so, we, we, not to mention, you know, the toxicity of this culture doesn't just reside in people being inauthentic, it also resides in to speak of genuine, you know, say climate change. I mean, does anybody still doubt that it exists? But for decades, we've had people lying about it, hiring false scientists to put out phony papers, denying climate change, even as the earth was being continually damaged and the atmosphere was being continually damaged. Those people have a certain agenda which is ego-driven and power-driven and profit-driven. So no personal transformation is going to succeed unless there's some sense of activism about challenging the structures in this society that keep all the inauthenticity going. And how much more inauthentic can you get than to destroy the earth for the sake of dividends? I mean, think about it. It's meaningless, actually. But, but people are caught in a certain ideology, a certain way of looking at life, a certain way of understanding themselves, of evaluating themselves. And that keeps the system going. So I think there has to be more than just personal transformation. I think we need to introduce a lot more awareness into the political culture, into the social culture, into medicine, into the law, into education. So I don't think it's just an individual concern. So you have a great deal of work to do. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, and are there people out there who would like to start their contribution to the work by asking a question? Um, we do have a microphone. Um, there's a lady down here. I'll just say that as we're waiting for questions is that the last intention I'd have is to sort of come across with a doom and gloom message. Um, I actually believe in the possibility of transformation on a personal and social level. I think people have it in us. I think human, humanity has it in us. So I, I don't think this is a losing proposition. It's daunting, but it's hardly impossible. And could I just ask, when you ask questions, try and keep it brief, because there are so many questions. 
Psychedelics could possibly help. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you say that you have tried them or you haven't? I haven't decided for March. Yes or no? Did you say haven't? I haven't. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, I do have a chapter in the book on psychedelics, chapter 31, where I describe my own experience with it, and I've worked with them now for 13 years now, um, both in a healing capacity, but also for myself. They have great potential. I, I'm not a psychedelic evangelist, you know, I don't think anyone thinks is going to save the world. In fact, as a writer, you often ask to write blurbs, endorsements for other people's books, and there's a book that I absolutely refuse to endorse just because I saw the title. And I said, even if this is the best book in the history of the universe, I will not endorse it because of the title. And the title was, How Psychedelics, psychedelics Will Save the World. Okay? I don't think psychedelics will save the world. Um, and, 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 and the the resurgent interest in psychedelics is due both to their own genuine potential but also to the to the poverty of our current therapeutic methods having said that psychedelics in the right context under the right guidance with the right intention in the right atmosphere can be powerfully supportive of healing i've seen people overcome addictions do much better with their autoimmune diseases experienced personal transformations that made their whole attitude towards life much more healthy and grounded. I've seen all that. I've also seen people being exploited through psychedelics and, 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 and they're being misused. So it's one of those modalities that it all depends on who's using it in what context and for what purpose. But yes, as a modality of healing, um, it's actually beyond insane that these things should be illegal. And, and that they're not being researched and supported more given their demonstrated potential, their research demonstrated potential, and given the sparsity of other methods. So that I think it's a wonderful modality that you need to take much more seriously. Um, it's for yourself. Personally, I can't advise you whether yes or no, because I'd have to know more about you, but it's, worth, it's probably worth exploring. Another question. Um. I found it interesting you said that you still had tension come up from not wanting to go for your dinner last night. And I wondered whether trauma can ever fully be healed or whether there's always going to be chases, always work, always stuff to do. Um, yeah, is there a point where you just never feel those tensions again? Have you ever heard the epigraph? So not my epitaph that I wrote, what's going to stay in my gravestone? Have I ever told you that? No? It's going to say, it was a lot more work than I had anticipated. <laughs> it, you know what? What you're really asking is, you, you can ask it from two points of view. One is, oh my God, is it ever over? They have to keep working. Or what are the possibilities inherent in continued growth? I mean, there is this saying, people growing old, by which we usually mean that they're getting aged and decrepit. But it's actually possible to grow old, you know, because the, the life continues to unfold its wisdom and, 
and you're, you're more in a position to understand it. You've clarified yourself, you've cleared yourself out of past programming so that you see more. And that's, that's an ongoing process, and I think that's particularly exciting. So, yeah, it's ongoing, and it's never over. Some people will have some huge spiritual, I mean, I think, David, you've dwelt in these realms maybe more than I have, but, but some people will have huge spiritual uh, transformations and experiences that overnight, all of a sudden, they're in a different realm. But those people are very few and, and far in between. For most of us, it's an ongoing process of clarification of ourselves and, and, and of freeing ourselves from our unconscious baggage. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've often said this, pardon me if I'm repeating, I, you know, I only have so many jokes, you know, and, and this is one of them. You know, but, but, but I've often said that um, uh, I'm 78 years old now and I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want to be as young and stupid as I was when I was 77. Another question somewhere. There's two of us up here. Um, um, whether it's not just politicians, but people who seek influence and seek power and a bigger voice, is that a good thing or is that, is that a lack in them? And should we trust that? I, ho I hope I got the question right. Yeah. Well, the, if I understand the question, the, here's the thing. If children have certain needs, and one of them is to make to be feel important just for existing, mm -hmm. just because they are. You're important not because you're pretty or smart or successful or compliant or you, because you please me. You're just important to me. And, and, I, and I welcome you in my life just as you are because it's important to me that you exist. That's the need of the child. If we don't get that need met, then we're going to seek that sense of importance through all kinds of activities through our life. In my case, through the practice of medicine and which drives a kind of addiction when it comes to work. Uh, it can, but that lack of, that, that lack of missing sense of my worth is going to show up in all realms of functioning, not just in politics. It's going to show up in your personal life, it's going to show up in how you relate to your work, and so on. So. Um, if the question implies that it has to go way beyond politics, it certainly does. Did that, did that kind of answer the question? I hope so. I yeah, think okay. so. Yeah. Um, there's a question down here at the front. Someone in a green jersey. Sorry. And two more, yeah. Hi. Um, so, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> basically, I developed, um, when I got diagnosed ADHD, uh, about four years too late, uh, even though it wasn't because it was amazing. I realised it was a bit of a superpower and I developed a programme teaching drama to people with mental health and addiction problems and it seems like it's proving to really heal and help the trauma that I have, they have. It's a wholeness that I'm getting from it and I feel like 
first of all, like his improvisation and acting and drama and role playing, he talks about your wife. Um, do you agree that it's proven to help on your trauma and addiction and confidence? Because, you know, connection, the opposite to addiction. And I wonder if bringing up that trauma sometimes is too painful. Can you summarize that? Yes, um, it's not your fault, it's the acoustics. Um, uh, was diagnosed with ADHD, yeah. felt that it was wrong, has gone on to teach people drama and, yeah, and, yeah. and does that helping other people... That he was misdiagnosed? Yeah, uh, does helping other people, is that a better cure for it? Is that, is that something that's... Well, uh, this, this whole thing about mental health diagnoses, including ADHD, these are constructs. They're not realities. They might reflect some aspect of reality, you know, but they're, they're not the whole reality of any one person. So, um, the people who tend to be diagnosed with it are you know, like myself. Uh, you know, you know I, I can certainly say that all my life I've had a tendency to tune out. I have difficulty keeping my mind on things unless I'm highly motivated. I've had issues in my younger years, certainly, with impulse control. And um, also sitting still has not been that easy for me, you know. So, that describes my functioning, but it doesn't explain anything of why I was, so, but it's not an explanation. So, diagnoses are never explanations, they're descriptions. So, you know, it's kind of a circular thing. Garbor has ADD, how do we know? Because he tunes out a lot. Why does he tune out a lot? Because he's got ADD. How do we know he's got ADD? Because he tunes out a lot. <laughs> you know? Another question. Now, now something like sorry. No, 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 sorry. Now something like ADD, the, the tuning out. It might characterize somebody's behavior, but it doesn't explain it. The explanation is that tuning out itself is a protective mechanism against stress. So if there's a lot of stress around a particularly sensitive child, particularly if kids are sensitive, which ADHD kids tend to be very sensitive, if there's a lot of stress around them. The way they, you know. Like David said, you can't, the child can't escape or fight back, so they, they kind of um, freeze or they, they, they dissociate. And that gets programmed into the brain, so now they've got this condition. But it all began as a coping mechanism. And, and, and what's usually there is the sensitivity, which makes you very creative and very spontaneous, sometimes too much so maybe, but, uh, in a, in, but also in a good way. And it means that you can actually offer a lot to other people. And, and people with that condition also tend to be very empathetic towards others because of their sensitivity. So that's what's probably showing up in your case. Whether you need the diagnosis or not, I don't care. It's a question, is, is your life working for you? Yeah, then who cares about a diagnosis? If it isn't working, then you might want to see, well, what kind of help can I get to help, you know, to support these difficulties of mine. But it sounds like for you, from what I understand your question, it, it, it's working and you're making it work to help others, so I say, terrific. Okay? That's it. How do we become more authentic and reconnect to ourselves? So what's the step one that you would say how we can reconnect to the truest version of us? What's the first thing you do? You notice when you're not being authentic. Now, do you ever sense after you talk to somebody or after an event 
I wasn't quite myself. I didn't say that I was asked a question. I didn't, I didn't give a really honest answer for fear of offending. Or I tried to ingratiate myself with somebody and I felt bad about it afterwards. I didn't feel like doing something, but I did it. Just notice it. So the way to get authentic is to notice the inauthenticity. Because who's doing the noticing? Which part of you recognizes, oh, I wasn't being authentic here? Guess what? That's the authentic self. So you keep exercising the authentic self by noticing the inauthenticity and not being critical about yourself about it. Not putting, oh, I was not being authentic again. You know, what an idiot, you know. <laughs> no, no you, 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 you engage in what I call compassionate inquiry. You ask, well, okay, what was my belief that kept me from being authentic? Where did I learn that belief? How's that serving me? We do talk about this process in the book quite a bit, but essentially it's strengthening the part of you that notices the inauthenticity. That's the authentic part. If it wasn't there, you would never realize that you're being inauthentic. Okay? All right. Is it, is it possible, just to pick up on that, that sometimes your body will notice before you do, that you oh, get a feeling somewhere or...? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. The body is going to send you all kinds of messages. I mean, if you're getting recurrent messages from your body, headaches, back spasms, di digestive issues, uh, recurrent ones, stomach aches. Uh, I mean, you should look at your diet, obviously, but in general, um, anxiety, dry mouth, sleeplessness, your body's sending you a message. And so that um, you may not know what the message is, but if you ask, you will find out. So these symptoms that people go to their doctors with, get rid of this for me, well, that's fine. You don't want to suffer symptoms, but at least at the same time as you're dealing with it on the symptomatic level, ask yourself, what is my body trying to tell me? Okay? Um, ladies and gentlemen, there are several people in the audience who will be traumatized if we don't get to that <laughs> question, but we can't. We have overrun as it is. Can I ask you to join me in thanking Gabor Mateo? This episode of the podcast starred Gabor Mate and was presented by David Malone. The producer was Sam Algranti, and the episode was edited by John Doughty. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Find Dr. Mate's previous appearance on the show on our website or on your podcasting app of choice. And visit us at howtoacademy.com to discover many more big ideas about the mind and the body. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.